Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Katz, and welcome to Tuesday's edition of WeRSC.com's Inside the Trojan Subtle, where we do tell it like it is. Friends, Inside the Trojan Subtle is a game-like panel discussion that is posted Tuesdays in the offseason and twice during the regular season. The huddle features WeRSC columnists, staff writers, and historians. We start off first with the pregame show, where we introduce our panel members for this edition of Inside the Trojan Subtle and then give you the latest USC Trojan football news. Now let's uh, meet uh, t- today's uh, panelists, uh, a WeRSC columnist who writes WeRSC.com's The Monday Morass, Yay or Nay, and Sunday Takeaways, in addition to regular season football and basketball reports. Also hosts his own podcast show entitled Locked on USC. That's Mark Culkin, the editor-in-chief of WeRSC.com, columnist, national recruiting guru, and a graduate of USC, that's Eric McKinney, and a former William Jewell College defensive back and WeRSC columnist who writes the popular WeRSC column Musings with Arledge and his own weekly WeRSC.com video show, Musings with Arledge Solo Edition. And he too is a graduate of USC, but the law school, that's Chris Arledge. And a reminder, programming note this week on Musings with Arledge Solo Edition, We'll hear the second edition or installment, if you will, of his interview with former USC offensive line coach, Pat Rule. And finally, a weekly WeRSC columnist who writes Fridays, the obvious and not so obvious, IMHO Sunday, and is an active member of the Football Writers Association of America, your moderator and producer of Inside the Trojan Huddle. That's me, Greg Katz. Before we begin the kickoff for this Tuesday's edition of Inside the Trojan Huddle, Here's a recap in USC football news. On Sunday night, Trojans got a huge defensive line commitment from Georgia transfer Bear Alexander, who officially visited the USC campus over the past weekend. Alexander has three years of eligibility remaining. More on that story shortly. The Trojans are now awaiting a response from former Houston offensive guard Canron Johnson, who also visited the Trojans this past weekend. Johnson has one year remaining, and the feeling is that the Trojans are in a good position with Johnson after an excellent recruiting visit to Los Angeles. According to Lincoln Riley, former Florida offensive guard Ethan White, who had an early committed to the Trojans, will not be coming to USC. White had been expected to be a starter. Riley said the reason that White will not be a Trojan is that his football career is in jeopardy due to an undisclosed medical condition. And the USC football family is mourning the loss of former 1975 team captain, all-conference, honorable mention, all-American, and WeRSC.com columnist, Kevin Bruce, who passed away at the age of 68 after a long battle with brain cancer. More on this story at the beginning of the first half of the huddle. Friends, WeRSC's Inside Trojan Huddle greatly appreciates your viewer and listenership and we encourage those of you watching on sites like YouTube to click on the red subscriber and like buttons. It's greatly appreciated, valued, and it's free. You can also listen to Inside the Trojan Huddle on many available podcast sites. Uh, and a reminder, WeRSC.com is offering a subscription special. You can get all the WeRSC premium content for just $29.99 up to August 31st, 2023, or $9.99 per month. So with that, we start the first half, the kickoff. Panel, we begin the first half of the huddle on a very sad note. Last Wednesday morning, our beloved friend and USC.com colleague, Kevin Bruce, 
passed away at 68 years old after a nearly 10-year battle with brain cancer. Kevin, a former 1975 USC football team captain, all-conference performer, honorable mention linebacker, and starter on the 1974 national champions, was known to ERSC followers as the columnist who write the very popular defensive speaking, which reviewed each Trojan game from a defensive perspective with select comments on the offense in general. Panel, this is a tough one. Uh, your thoughts and memories on the passing of our WeRSC teammate, Kevin Bruce. Uh, Mark, we'll start off with you, uh, your thoughts and memories. So, uh, you know, I didn't know Kevin as well as the three of you, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I, I tuned into Chris's musings show last week when he, he so eloquently uh, eulogized Kevin. And what I took away from that was, you know, Kevin is, was a badass on defense. I mean, he talked about how they used to practice. And then I saw how he carried that over to the show. And, you know, he would challenge me and he would challenge me hard. And I can only imagine what it would be like to go up against him during a football practice. So if that was his way of trying to help me and make me better, I enjoyed those confrontations. Um, at times, it was a little frustrating. So I, again, but if if that's what the competition was like on the practice field or going up against him in the game, I, I'm the I'm a better man for 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 knowing for knowing Kevin. So. That's all I'll add at this point. Chris, you had a, a very strong relationship uh, with uh, Kev. Um, where did you first meet Kevin? And uh, tell us about your memories. And again, let me echo what Mark said. It was a really emotional video that you had on your show. Uh, I could feel the pain in your eyes because uh, I was feeling it uh, myself as well. So tell us about uh, about your thoughts. Yeah, I first met Kevin shortly after I moved to Dallas. I, um, uh, I I knew from his articles on WeRSC that he lived out here, and so I reached out to him, and we met for lunch. And, and after that, we met fairly regularly for lunch um, uh, at a place right next to his work. Um, you know, most of what I would want to say, I've, I've already said. I, I'll just say this, that, um, that Kevin... Kevin was clearly a, a football guy. He understood football. He loved football. Um, he understood the game at a very deep level. Um, but he was also a really good guy and, and he, not afraid to mix it up, as we've talked about on this show, um, because he, he, was passionate about, uh, he was passionate about USC football. Um, but he was, uh, he was generous and, and um, uh kind and uh, and a man of great faith and um so i i you know i appreciate having had the opportunity to spend time with him and uh and we'll miss him he was a good guy and um and he deserves the uh you know he deserves the the tributes that he's been getting on the on this site eric kevin bruce where, when did you meet him your thoughts yeah i mean i i'm obviously met him writing writing for the site and and what he would do and i like chris said i i learned so much about football from him just kind of talking and and what always stood out is how passionate he was about defensive football but usc especially i mean when, when he would kind of get rolling after a frustrating defensive performance it, it was um 
kind of a, a, a mix of therapy and, and stand-up comedy as, as he was kind of going through what he saw from, from some of the guys. And, and he was good about, you know, picking out the, the positives and here's what we need to work on. And, and again, learning so much from him. He was, like everyone sort of mentioned, so tough. I, I think it it kind of speaks to his character that, that it was a surprise for a lot of people when this happened, just how long he was dealing with it and kind of kept pushing forward and would always, you know, get his stories in and, and make sure that he was following through, you know, on what he said he would do. And I think that kind of speaks to to the character. But no, what what always stand out is just kind of being able to listen to him go play by play through a game and here's what he liked it and here's what he didn't like. And again, the the passion for USC, for USC football from him is just kind of kind of unrivaled, I think, from from what I've seen and and the people that I've been able to talk to. That that's what'll always stand out to me um, about him. Well said. Well, you know, coming on the passing of Steve Bishop, who is a very tight friend of mine, Kevin, I met because uh, for the Boston College game way back when, Gary Pasquitz had uh, called me. He says, hey, uh, Kevin Bruce, you know who he is? I said, yeah, I know. Yeah, Kevin, sure. He says he wants to meet you. He enjoys reading you. I don't know why, but he that's what he said. So I said, sure. He says, um, here's his phone number. He wants to meet you because he was living in Boston at the time uh, fighting cancer and uh working there uh for through his business i guess he's able to do it juggle it and so i met him at uh a, a restaurant in italy little i guess it's the north side uh in what would be i guess little italy uh called bricos i think it was called bricos and the the first time we met each other it was almost like we had known each other forever in a day uh, we sat for about three hours, just, you, I was telling about my days uh, at Edison High School and the teams we had there and uh, how, where we both grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. And he would go to places that I went. I, I was about five years older than Kevin, but the relationship grew and grew and grew. And I think Chris knows this, you know, game day, I would be getting texts from, <laughs> from him and he would be unloading and, you know, I, he says, uh, you know, we're, we suck, uh, you know, but you know what I took away from him was the reason I'm so passionate about USC football and my ex expectations are so high because there was a guy that was a captain of a 74 national championship team. He was part of the 72 national championship team. If anybody knew what it's like to be a national on a national championship team and play and the expectations, this guy knew it like the back of his hand. And if you talk to Kevin, uh, he really, you really got the sense that here's what a national championship football player looks like, acts like, and behaves like uh, at the University of Southern California. And it was, it used to just kill him. Uh, and myself, and I'm sure uh, the others on the panel as well, to having have gone through the last several years since, uh, you know, the Pete Carroll era, that, you know, playing for USC, a storied program, if you meet the guys who are on these national championship teams, and I've met more than just Kevin, there is a sense of like, uh, we don't accept second place. We don't accept 10 victories. The only thing they accept 
is we're in it for the national championship and win it and definitely win the conference. And there's no uh, rationalization why it was a good season. I know Kevin felt that, you know, the limitations last season, he was appreciative of the turnaround. But I talked to him two, two weeks before he passed, and he was very serious about the defense and where it was headed, and he was very concerned about it. You'd never know this guy was in a hospice home. Uh, it was all football. And I did. I just want to just end this with, with something that I found it was something that was very difficult for me to deal with. And that was, uh, you know, a lot of people on our show, and I want to thank everybody that watches us. We're at about 4,700, probably on the average, give or take. And I'm sure during the season will be more. You know, we're all people here. We're giving our opinions. They're nothing more than our opinions. Uh, you can agree with us. You can disagree with us. And that's part of the fun. But when it becomes personal, that's out of bounds for me. And when I say out of bounds, I'm talking about personal attacks, ripping on our physical features, our culture, our religion. There's no place on this show. If you're going to go in that direction and leave comments like that, we're not the show for you. And I bring this up because, and I know it's not anybody's fault that watches the show, but you know, we have known those of us and the staff, and obviously you viewers have not known it. Kevin's been in, was in a battle for his life for a long, long time. And part of the reason his voice was at times very difficult to listen to is the chemotherapy and the cancer uh, drugs that he was taking were taking a huge toll on his body and it attacked his vocal cords. And for him personally, and as a teammate, and I think I speak for the others here on the, that have been on the show, for him, he looked forward to being on the show. He knew his physical limitations, but we felt, I felt, uh, that you know, it was really important that he be able to do this. I'll tell you, he was so loyal to this show that even when he could not talk or speak uh, and be on the show, he he wanted to have the script that we go by every week so he could stay up to speed on what we're doing. It would stimulate his mind in difficult times. And that's just the type of guy he was. He treated everything that he was involved in, business, whatever, um, like he was you're he was on the team. You're on his team. But I, I just want to leave it with this that, you know. We don't know what goes on in everybody's life and that sort of stuff. But when somebody has some physical thing that you know is, you know, like, why is he doing this? There may be a reason. And Kevin's was, his voice was that he was suffering from the after effects of chemo. So uh, most everyone on this show that comments or people that watch our show are very kind to us. Very good. Even if you don't agree with this, you put it in a thoughtful, considerate and critical manner. And we, we, we accept that and we appreciate it. I know this. When football season starts, I'll be taking two steps to my uh, to my phone to start a text to Kevin, but Kevin won't be there to answer, and that's going to be really difficult for all of us. So wherever he is, I know he'll be out watching us, and I know he's he's in good hands now because he told me he knew where he was going after the life on Earth. So I celebrate his life like everyone else does. So on that note. It's probably appropriate that we transition to something defensively, which I know Kevin would love. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, defensive tackle Bear Alexander, formerly of the Georgia Bulldogs, announced on <laughs> Sunday night 
He will be a USC Trojan. He has three years of eligibility remaining. Okay, panel, here we go. Give me your impressions of Bear Alexander, former, I don't know whether he's four-star or five-star, depends on your recruiting evaluation, I suppose, coming out of IMG Academy in Florida, which, by the way, was sold to uh, a new conglomerate. So we'll see what happens with IMG Academy. Uh, what does Alexander mean for the Trojans defensively and specifically the defensive line? Let's get back to work here. Mark Culkin, what does it all mean? It means that Lincoln Riley is putting together a really good 2023 recruiting class. It doesn't seem to end. Um, look, you have now, you, you have your cornerstone, you have your anchor, presumably, of that defensive line. Uh, someone you can put in the middle that is going to be able to bring a championship mentality. Let's not forget that. He's coming off of a national championship. And bring that type of culture to the locker room that Lincoln O'Reilly has been trying to, to build from year one going into year two. And what it also does is it's showing people across the country, you know, like, all right, we know USC is going to be great offensively. They've, they've got the Heisen winner at quarterback. They've got Lincoln O'Reilly. But now all of a sudden recruits and other players are paying attention. Like, all right, there's the first guy to, to jump ship and say, I can go help that team win a championship playing defense. So if that starts to resonate and that domino starts to fall, that's going to help USC in the future. But as of right now, the defensive line, it gives them incredible depth. I mean, you can now start spreading that talent that they've already brought in and start spreading along too deep. So you know, we're hearing great things of how that defensive line has looked so far throughout spring. You've just now added a, a blue chip, uh, a, a blue chip piece into that room, and if Sean Nua is as good as we've seen him be, he, he's got a, a really, really good piece to work with, along with Anthony Lucas and Jack Sullivan. And from what I'm hearing, not just on the record, off the record from everybody, Solo is killing it. So you add him, you add Bear, you add these other guys. There's really no no place to look but up for the USC defense this year. Chris Arledge, uh, you're from a defensive cloth, so to speak. Uh, what does it all mean? Should we get overly excited? Should we temper our enthusiasm? What do you think? Well, it's a lot easier to play defense when you have really big, really athletic guys up front. And, you know, the, there were two questions when when Lincoln Riley came over, one was whether he can build a defense, and number two was whether USC is disadvantaged because you can't get the sort of uh, big-time blue-chip defensive line recruits in California that you can get throughout the South. And I think Lincoln Riley's answer to that is that he's just going to go and pull guys from other parts of the country. Um, Mark is right. When you look at when you look at the four defensive line transfers USC has brought in. Uh, so with Sullivan and Bars, you're talking about two guys who are uh, who are big and experienced, who have played well in the past. And then with with Lucas and Bear Alexander, you're talking about two guys who got playing time as true freshmen, which isn't easy to do on the defensive line, but who will, uh, but who have the physical skills to be to be first round picks in a couple of years. And, and it's very difficult to be an elite program unless you have elite guys up front. When you have, 
Lucas and Alexander, you have two guys who are potentially truly elite guys up front. Um, and Mark is also right that the depth is the depth is much better if if your second team line is uh, is guys like Solo, uh, who's been playing very well, Dejon Benton, who I thought was was actually very good in that uh, in the spring game, um, uh, Tyrone Tallini, who I think made huge strides last year, will probably make huge strides again this year. If that's your second group, you are in a dramatically different position than USC was last year. So I know USC fans still have their concerns about Alex Grinch and his scheme. Uh, I share some of those concerns. That being said, it's a lot easier to be a defensive coordinator when you have big, fast, strong guys in your front seven. And USC now has that where they didn't have, they, they had one, they had one before. Now they're starting to build some real depth. So I'm excited about it. I think that, I think that adding guys like this changes the entire nature of the defense and, and the season. USC is a legitimate playoff contender at this point. Uh, and I don't know that they would have been without these four defensive line transfers. Thanks for reminding Keon Bars. Appreciate that. All right, Eric, what do you think? Yeah, the, I'm, this dude's got a sack in the national championship game. Do, do you know how many other guys on USC's roster have a, a sack in a national championship game? I mean, that that's sort of what he brings. I, I don't think he's... Caleb Williams or, or Jordan Addison, just in terms of what he's kind of produced throughout his career when they came over. But yeah, a guy who's that big, that athletic on the defensive line, those are where you're seeing, I think Lick and Riley roll the dice a little bit on, yeah, you don't have to be a three-year veteran with a ton of production. We can do something with Anthony Lucas. We can do something with Bear Alexander. And you mix them in with guys like Jack Sullivan, who was a big-time contributor on a, a really, really good defensive line last year, a Keon Bars that has a, a ton of experience, especially experience in, in the Pac-12. Um, and now you're talking about a defensive line where, you're again, uh, you know, we, we've all hit on that depth so far. Uh, Stanley Taufo was the guy in the middle of, of USC's defense for multiple years as a guy who came in as a linebacker, eventually moved up. And, and again, coaches, players, teammates, all of that, they, they rave about kind of his work ethic and, and how much he puts in. He's, he's not the guy in the middle of a national championship defense and especially not the only guy in the middle. Now you're talking about guys like that, guys who, who USC has had to count on to play huge numbers of snaps and be game changers, they can come in with the second, third. You can you can roll in multiple lines. You can move guys all around. Bear Alexander can play probably a couple spots for you. Jack Sullivan can move all over the line. You can do so much now up front, and it's not just bodies. It's really talented guys who have already proven that they can do it at this level. So. No, it's huge. It's huge. Um, I think just from what you've done to the roster there, adding him, and then also, again, Mark touched on this, and, and not to kind of go over it, Lincoln Riley had to prove that he could go get a defensive guy. He could go get a name defensive guy. And when Barry Alexander goes in, again, we're talking about a top 20 
guy in the transfer portal this this entire offseason. I think I think on three has him at, at number 17 uh, and the number one true defensive lineman. That says something when USC can go get that after a year where nationally the defense kind of turned into a punching bag a little bit with with what they did. Um, that perception, it means something. This is another, it, you know, coming from IMG, but a Texas kid uh, being able to go in there and, and prove, yeah, we can we can get these guys. There can be a home for you uh, out here at USC. That that's big. It's it's uh, they're, they're really again. I it's not quarterback. It's not Caleb Williams um, who could come in and, and do what he did. But boy, it's it's not far off of that. Well, I have a I have uh, mostly positive vibes about this. Uh, uh, there are some things that uh, uh, I kind of raise an eyebrow in the sense from, you know, on paper, it all looks good. OK, it all looks good. And, you know, I watched the spring game. I'm going to give you an example of this. It wasn't even like Anthony Lucas was out there. I mean, I didn't see what I wanted to see. That doesn't mean, you know, you, you know, I wasn't in practice. So, you know, so I couldn't see what he did every day. And Lincoln Riley's certainly correct about that. But on game day, which that spring game was, I look at the guy's motor. And I was the guy I was most impressed with was probably uh, Keon Bars. I thought he was just dynamite. I mean, he was relentless. He stood out. He's got a motor. And I thought Sullivan was pretty good, too. Uh, I don't know how much uh, speed he has getting upfield to the quarterback because we don't know because he they weren't allowed to get to the quarterback. Uh, but it's it, it, they're better players than what they've had. Okay, uh, potential is unproven talent. Uh, we're going to have to watch and see how they actually play. Now, getting to the point of Bear Alexander, you know, I did a little background check on him, and uh, you know. I have all the faith in the world that the coaches know what they're doing and bringing in these players. And obviously Bear Alexander was a household name in recruiting, yada, yada, yada. He had the sacks in the national title game. That was great. Uh, but then I looked and I saw that he had been to like five schools in four years, constantly transferring, uh, I guess, probably through maybe no fault of his own, the rules of the governing bodies that he was ruled athletically ineligible at some schools, uh, districts, which happens. I've seen that. It's not always the fault of the, of the player. So I'm not, I'm not putting an onus on him, but I want to see the motor on this guy that on paper, like I said, he, it looks great, uh, but he still got to prove it. I thought that bars proved it in the spring game. I'm not saying that, uh, that Lucas isn't going to be a great player, but I think that if you didn't know any of the plays, you could get fired up on every down. And I think in, in the spirit of Kevin Bruce, that's what Kevin would always say. I look at a player each down. Does he bring it every down, not every second down or every two thirds? So I want to see, because I remember how excited everyone was. And I'm not, people say, come on now. You, you can make an onion cry. Ishmael Sopcher, remember coming from Alabama? He was going to be the next big thing. And we know how that turned out doesn't mean that bear alexander isn't going to end up a first round draft pick but i'm i'm just going to let it all play out and say they're better than they were but it still has to happen so with that in mind let's move to uh last week 
uh, highly anticipated uh, Florida offensive guard Ethan White, who is expected to be a potential starter, would not be coming to USC. At this point in time, what effect does White not coming to USC matter to the USC offensive line? Mark, where where are we at this point in time with White not coming? Uh, they're in the same. Well, they're actually in a bigger hole than they were when everyone thought he was coming because Cortland Ford has moved on. So there, look, I, I've I've spoken about this. They have the numbers, they have the pieces to to make the offensive line work, including having an upper two deep. But there there are some holes. Um, they they need to find someone who's going to be able to replace Andrew Voorhees. Gino Quinones showed he can play guard, but you want to start moving the pieces around a lot. I mean, Michael Tarquin has been playing left tackle pretty much most of spring. He played right tackle at Florida. You had Jonah, who is playing inside. They're talking about playing him outside. What if they if what if USC doesn't get any more pieces? Now do you start maybe thinking, do we put Jonah? Monheim at left tackle. We put Mason Murphy at right tackle. There's some holes. I'm not going to say they're overly concerned, but they need to find a replacement for Ethan White. They were counting on him. They were counting on having Ford. Cameron Johnson took a visit over the weekend. I know they're counting on him. They brought in uh, the kid, uh, the young man from Wyoming, Emmanuel. Eric, is a, am I pronouncing it correct? Pregnon? Pregnon? Sure. Sounds great. Great. So, but he looks like your prototypical tackle, you know, six foot six, 300 pounds, arms that just keep going when he extends them. But he played guard. Uh, I'm hearing that they have to address a couple of spots. So it's a big deal that he's not going to be able to play because they had the interior locked up. They knew that they were going to have White. They knew that they were going to have Dietrich. And I think they, for the most part, they were counting on having Jonah play right guard. They brought in Kingston Jarrett. They brought in, um, and they were planning to bring in uh, uh, Ethan White, and they brought in Tarquin. Jarrett Kingston, I don't know. Did he play tackle in the, in the spring game? I saw him playing inside a lot. Here's where I think it's going to happen. They need to bring in two big guys. One of them is going to be Cameron Johnson. And hopefully they convince uh, Emmanuel Pregnon to be the other guy. And I think they're going to look at him at a tackle spot. Chris, do you have concerns about uh, the fact that White is not going to be here? And does that kind of uh, mess up the plan, so to speak, going forward? I think if, uh, if Cameron uh, commits, and I think everybody expects that he will, then it doesn't bother me as much. Uh, that kid's a good football player who was all conference where he was. Um, he'll be able to step in and play well. I, I think USC has a lot of good offensive linemen. That left guard spot is still a concern. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Quinones is, is working hard. He's played there before and played pretty well. I don't know that he has the physical attributes that USC wants in, in their offensive line. I'm not sure he's... Uh, I'm not sure he's as big as as you'd like uh, as you'd like to have at your left guard. Um, but if they land if they land uh, Cameron Johnson, if they land Pregnon, especially, then I'll feel very good about the offensive line. Look, an offensive line that has Mason Murphy running with a second group can't be that bad. I mean, let's be honest. 
that kid's that kid's really talented and he has some experience. If he's a second team offensive lineman, then you have some players. And they do have some players. Put on top of that, that um, while I do wonder whether or not uh, whether or not they're set at left tackle, they don't have a Tony Baselli at left tackle, but you usually don't. Um, I don't know that having I don't know that having a left tackle is as critical when you have Caleb Williams. If you have Matt Leinert, you need a you need a tackle that will stop edge rushers from getting in the backfield because he's not going to be able to make people miss. Caleb Williams can be able to make people miss. Um, you could have your left tackle whiff half the time and they're going to get three sacks because Caleb Williams moves so well. So uh, I think Tarquin will be fine there if they indeed keep him there. And, and I think the offensive line is going to be fine because Caleb Williams skills make everybody better. So I'm not that worried about it, but they do, they do need one of those two transfers at the very least. If they don't get either one of them, then I think they're going to, I think they're going to, I think the coaching staff is going to be a little underwhelmed with their options at left guard, which is not a shot at King Jonas. I think he's probably a pretty good player, but I think, I think if you're a national championship team, he's probably not a starting left guard. Eric, you uh, recruiting is your wheelhouse. Uh, are you sweating bullets over the uh, fact that white's not going to be there and slotted in at, at left guard? What's your thoughts? No, I mean he's he's replaceable. You you didn't need to replace him when he was coming in and and you felt pretty good about it, but he wasn't the best left guard in college football last year. And again, USC's working pretty quickly to find a replacement and, and bring someone in. These coaches are the the USC coaches can work the transfer portal. They understand what's going on there. They're they're not gonna get caught. You know, oh, we, we had no idea what was going on. Now we don't know how to go get anybody. They're, they're going to go and they're going to find someone. And they're going to bring someone in. I honestly think the offensive line's okay. I mean, Chris is right. You could just have the center snap it back to Caleb Williams and have no offensive linemen, and Caleb Williams will, will figure out what to do. Michael Tarquin came in, and, and certainly the thought was, yeah, he played right tackle all last year at Florida. He's going to come in and play right tackle at USC. So it was kind of one of those uh, spring surprises, I think, when he got thrown in at left tackle, talked about it, and then that's all he it's all he seemingly did was play left tackle. If he's okay, that's fine. USC did not get great play out of their left <laughs> tackles the entire year last year. That that I think was the weakest spot of the five along that offensive line. No matter who, they had three guys playing left tackle, and all of them kind of gave you this the same thing. So if that's Michael Tarquin's floor, which I think that's kind of what we've seen at Florida, I think that's sort of he fits in with what Bobby Haskins gave you and what Cortland Ford gave you last year and and when Mason Murphy played there. Uh, and then you hope the experience kind of raises that up a little bit as he gets more and more comfortable. I think you're okay there. Jarrett Kingston, again, played all – he played only left tackle last year at Washington State. He played guard before that. But, yeah, the thought was – he played left tackle there. He's coming in to play left tackle. And uh, Josh Edson would be really up front early on. No, he's a, he's a guard body. He's an interior guy. Justin Deeds referred to him as a, as a guard when he first got there, which is kind of the first time you're like, oh, he's, he's not, not going to play left tackle. So they're very comfortable with him at guard, which tells me they're very comfortable. I mean, that, this staff is comfortable with Jonah Monheim playing anywhere. So if he stays out at right tackle, 
I think Caleb Williams is fine with that. I think the staff's fine with that. And, and I think you're set. So I think you are okay on the offensive line, even if you don't get anybody, you're okay. What you want to be is a Joe Moore award winner. You want to be the best offensive line in the country. You want to not have Caleb Williams have to make three guys miss in the backfield on every single snap. And if you are going to be that, everybody's right. You need you need one of these all-conference guys that you're involved with right now. You need to add one. You need to add two just because you do. You, you need to go eight strong deep on the offensive line to get through a year. And so you can't just have, yeah, we, we've got our starting five and we feel okay about those guys. So again, they, they could get through the year right now. You're talking about Mason Murphy being a backup. Andrew Malek is a guy that got, you know, positive reviews from the coaches this year. You, you have some guys, uh, Elijah Page came in early and did well as a true freshman early and early at left tackle. Again, you don't want him taking super important snaps as a true freshman trying to block for, for Caleb Williams. I think you're okay. And I think they're going to get one of these veteran transfer guys. And then I think you're going to be pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, no, not a lot of concerns. I think the difference becomes that line last year had played together so much. When you're talking about Andrew Voorhees, you're talking about Brett Nealon and Justin Deej being in there and, and Monheim, even with the train, even with Bobby Haskins coming over, there was so much familiarity in that group. How quickly can this group with maybe guys at a bunch of different positions and you're talking about potentially three brand new guys this year all playing together, how quickly does that gel? We've also seen that that this USC culture that Lincoln Riley's brought over, there aren't a lot of questions with that. These guys, these guys are really good at kind of coming together, common, common goal, playing in this offense and and doing pretty well. So I think they're okay. I think they have a chance to be to be pretty darn good once all the pieces get in place here. Yeah, I think that um, I was really excited about Ethan White. Uh, I watched tape on him. Uh, I thought that Ethan White could be the difference between having a good offensive line and a very good offensive line. Uh, I think that uh, that Chris touched on uh, Quinones as uh, giving a great effort, uh, but maybe not quite as physically uh as they would like that spot to be uh which is not a rip on on Gino at all uh but I thought that White was going to really bring a physicality to that line like Voorhees did uh doesn't mean it's still not going to happen uh if uh you know if Johnson from Houston comes over uh you know he's he is decorated for the conference that he was in uh if he slots in I think I think what I'm interested in is I don't think they're quite done yet. Uh, and we know what they're doing because we see these uh, official visits. But I think that the the uh, freshman from Texas A&M, the center, I think it's Wyckoff, is uh, in the transfer portal. And if he actually came to SC or becomes plan B or whatever they have, and he came over, it's possible that you could uh, maybe, uh, as, well, first of all, you'd be getting your possibly your future center uh, as uh, you know the, the guy was an uh, all SEC freshman team, uh, but you could also get him. Uh, maybe it could affect Justin uh, Dietrich uh, in an emergency situation playing left guard since he does know you know the guard spot. So I think they're going to be okay. I think Johnson, I think, is going to come. Uh, 
and it'll play itself out. But I think like we all agree on, you know, the, the whole dimension of Caleb Williams changes the whole uh, set of what an offensive line uh, will be. So with that, let's uh, talk about another commitment that SD got last week from high from Texas high school running back Brian Jackson. And uh, apparently they're now firmly in the hunt uh, based on his own uh, uh, Twitter, social media feed, the nation's number two running back in the country, Taylor Tatum, another Texan. Panel, your thoughts on the running back room expansion. Is it possible that the 2024 Trojan running backs will consist of an all-back room from Texas? And what does that say about the high school running back talent in California? Uh, is it a big deal whether who cares where they come from, Mark Culkin? Uh, is there a method to the madness here? Uh, are they trying to match up running backs, size, and speed and quickness? What, what what are they doing here? They're they're looking for the best guys out there who want to be Trojans. Bottom line, and it, they happen to be coming from Texas, and you know Kyle McDonald has a a, a strong you know uh, relationship, you know strong relationships built down there, as well as Lincoln Riley and, and the staff. You keep mining until you're until you run out. Uh, this particular running back is going to be perfect for when USC you know, moves over into the big conference. And he's a big, thick downhill runner. And uh, that's going to, that's going to work well. You need to have that balance. You can have all the Rayleigh Browns and the Quentin Joiners, you know, all the exciting jitterbug type of, you know, running backs, but you still need to have those big, powerful, you know, wear you down type of running backs. And that's what he is. So I'm good with, I think it's great. Does it make a difference that USC isn't getting any from California? They're still recruiting, you know, and if they, if two come from Texas and only one comes from California at this point with the transfer portal, I don't think it really matters. You're seeing players move all across the country every day. So I don't think it matters anymore at, at a certain point at one time, you know, yeah, put a fence around your, your backyard. Don't let anybody leave. As long as you're getting the best players in your backyard, go get the best players in somebody else's backyard at the same time. Well, speaking of backyards, nobody knows uh, at least uh, the backyard of Texas high school football because he lives there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Chris, uh, is this a, a big deal or not a big deal getting all these Texas running backs? And uh is there any concern that you start piling running backs on there and it, it does affect uh, future recruiting in California? Uh, first of all, there are lots of people who know high school Texas football a lot better than I do. But you're right. I do live here. And I was at McKinney High School just last week. Uh, I don't think I saw Brian Jackson there. Um, so I trust Lincoln Riley and Kyle McDonald when it comes to backs. Um, they both at two different schools did a remarkable job at finding guys, uh, sometimes under the radar guys, and, and turning them into superstars. Uh, so if, if Brian Jackson is their guy, I'm on board. Mark is right, this is a big dude. I mean, I think he's a good 230 or so now, which means he's probably going to play at 250 or so at, uh, at USC, that's a big back. And, um, and, you know, he's not the most highly rated guy in the world, but if you watch his, if you watch his highlights, seems to move pretty well for a big guy. 
and uh, and it's not like he's playing at a uh, at a low level of high school football. McKinney plays some pretty good football teams out here, and the one thing you the one thing you realize when you start watching Texas high school football is that a lot of the talent is spread out. Uh, in California, there are probably five high schools that supply ninety percent of the uh, of the of the blue chip recruits. It's not really true in Texas and throughout DFW. You can go just about every game, and you're going to see a D1 player on the field. So he, he the highlights that you're seeing are coming against um, good teams and teams with with real athletes. So uh, I, I'm excited about Jackson. I'm excited to think they may land Taylor Tatum, who looks like a game breaker, and uh, we'll see if that happens. In the old days, if you go to Texas and find a guy who's marginally better than the guy you can get in California, the California guy you pass up is going to, is going to land in the Pac-12. You're going to play him over and over again. And every time you play him, the only thing in, in his life that matters is beating USC because he got snubbed by USC. I don't know that that's true anymore, right? I mean, it, it, Whatever, whatever California backs they pass up, USC is probably only going to see them once as true freshmen. And so I think the calculus changes a little bit. And, uh, and Lincoln Riley and his staff have deep contacts in Texas. You have to recruit Texas right now if you're USC. That's where you're going to find your defensive linemen. Um, apparently, that's where you're going to find your running backs. A lot of good running backs in Texas, too. Uh, so USC has to recruit Texas, and they're going to continue to recruit Texas, and and so I, I don't see this as being a problem. I think it's probably a good thing. Continue to pull people out of uh, uh, out of Texas and keep that pipeline going. They're still going to be fine with Southern California high schools, especially if USC wins over the next couple of years away. I think they're going to win. When USC is winning, they do not have a hard time recruiting Southern California. I think they'll be fine. Eric, um, is is the running back stock down in California from your vo uh, point of view? Uh, you know, I was going to say that Najee Harris is probably the last, for me, the really big running back uh, stud. Uh, I think he was out of Richmond, California, Northern California. Uh, how does all this playing out with Texas and California? Uh, is this something to be alarmed about? What, 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 how do you, how do you see it? I mean, I, I wrote a story probably 10 years ago now about how California running backs are, are non-existent anymore. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's been a long time uh, that this California running back draft. Now you got Nate Frazier at modern day, I think is phenomenal. So, so they're still here. You, you still have your guys, but Kyle McDonald, gets to recruit whoever he wants like that. He's, he's developed that reputation and, and he's found success both in who he finds and how he develops them. And he knows who he's going to work well with. He, he, he's good. Whatever, whatever he wants to go, whoever he wants to go after, that's fine with me. He has deep ties in Texas. And, and we've talked about that both with him and with Lincoln Riley, Texas is a state that they're going to be able to go recruit. And I think you're okay. I mean, Chris kind of hit on it too. It, when USC's not winning, you had better pay a lot of attention to LA kids and Southern California kids because their attention's going to go. And then when you need them, you're not going to get them. If you can win with anybody, the local kids are going to be USC fans and, and they're going to go there. They're going to go there with a team, with a quarterback 
from back east, with running backs from Texas, with defensive linemen from Louisiana and Florida, whatever it is, if you're winning at USC, you're going to get the Southern California kids because that's still the, the team they're watching and the team that they want to go be a part of. So I think it's different when your program is the way it's going right now compared to when you're winning seven, eight games and kind of struggling and, and trying to keep their attention. You'd better go all in on recruiting those local kids. So, no, I don't, I don't think it's an issue. I think it's going to be – I mean, Lincoln Riley has made no bones about we, we're going to get the best roster we can, however that comes from. If that's high school recruiting, if that's transfer portal, if that's local kids, if that's international kids, if that's kids from the Midwest or the South or back East or wherever it is – at that position, we want the best player. And so if you go out and, and you see Texas running backs, that's that's what you're going to bring in. Because I think we've seen now, once they get to USC, you're you're a USC kid. You fit in here, and, and they've done a really good job of kind of building that locker room right now to where Marion Peterson comes in and Quentin Joyner comes in. And they're not Texas backs anymore. They're USC running backs. And, and I think they've done a really good job uh, of that. So again, if Brian Jackson's a guy that showed early interest, which he did in USC and, and the USC coaches kind of targeted him. We've seen that we've got, you know, Tackett Curtis in Louisiana, that, that interest in USC, it kind of caught you, you know, Oh, he's, he's really looking at this. Brian Odom was out there as often as he could. These coaches are good at kind of developing those relationships with those kids that, that are out there nationally uh, and that they're not afraid to go after him early and kind of say, hey, you're you're my top guy for for this spot. So, no, I, I think it's a I think it's a big win. Again, he's not a five star, you know, big time guy chased by everybody, but he had some interest from from some big schools. So I, I think Kyle McDonald, absolutely. I can work with this guy. I, I see where he's going to be in two, three, four years. So, again, I'm I'm on board with whoever he wants to bring in. Yeah, and I'm on board with him. I think he's a tremendous coach. I think he's proven it. He proved it at Utah when he was coaching there for Kyle Whittingham. I think he's more than shown that he's he's the real deal coach, so to speak. He's certainly the best running back coach I've seen there since uh, uh, Dillon, uh, was it? Uh, McCullough. Dillon McDonald. What's that? Dillon McCullough. McCullough, correct. That's right who's now at Notre Dame, I might add, but uh, th this guy definitely, if he's going to recruit a three-star, I have no problem with it. I go and watch the film. I think I can see some of the things that he's seeing and he's going to be coaching him. So if whoever he recruits is fine by me, I know they're going to turn out to be better players. And isn't that what everyone at SC has been clamoring about player development. And uh, I have all the faith in the world with uh, Lincoln Riley and uh, McDonald, uh, you know, getting guys out of the port, whatever. I, I don't care where they come from as long as they as long as they uh, provide USC with a championship uh, performance. I'm I'm all for it. So with that, let's move on to uh, I, we talked about this when it was in the proposal stage, but now it was passed on Friday. The NCAA playing rules oversight panel approved a series of changes for the 2023 season. Uh, a the rules committee approved a new rule that the game clock would run after first downs in all divisions except division three. However, the clock will stop during the final two minutes of each half, which makes it a different uh, sort of ball game than the NFL in some ways. 
Uh, panel, your thoughts on the specific rule change, how it's going to affect USC's style of play. And I'm going to add just, you know, I've been going to a lot of baseball games uh, as a season ticket holder for the Dodgers. And I, I didn't think it would make that big a difference, but I was definitely wrong. That pitch clock made a big difference in shortening the game. Uh, now people are saying it's not long enough. But from, from your uh, thoughts on specific rule change, uh, the one we just talked about, the clock moving, is this going to be a good thing for USC with, with the clock really moving? That means less offensive plays, I would suspect. Uh, uh, Eric, is, is this a good rule, bad rule? What do you think? Well, the rule is whatever, right? If we're, if we're talking about how this affects USC, I, I could spin it a little bit into being a positive for USC. If they are kind of ex as explosive as you anticipate a Lincoln Riley offense to be, then the idea would be they can still score kind of at that pace that they want to run at. And if it's fewer plays for the opposition, then the USC defense is out on the field for less time throughout the course of a game or a season. I think I saw that the expectation is this cuts like seven plays out of a, a game or something like that, which at that point, I'm not totally sure what we're doing. But uh, again, I, you know, talking about is this going to hurt USC's offense? No, I think they'd have to let a rule where a defense could play with like 16 guys on the field for anything to really start affecting what the USC offense might be able to do this year. I think it'll be kind of a quick change for everybody, but my thought, USC, I think when they feel good about it, wants to go kind of as fast as anybody. So I, I don't know, I don't know really how much this changes uh, anything for the USC offense, but if it's seven fewer plays for the opposing offense, that, that could be, that could be a good thing for, uh, for the USC defense, if again it's it's anything like what went out there for uh, for parts of last year, Mark, is this a good thing for SC? This new rule. First of all, who asked? Who asked for this rule change? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh oh, Mark's getting fired up. All right, here we go. Eric already touched on it. If it's we're talking about eliminating seven to eight plays for an entire game, it's not for one team. It's over the course of a game. And to say that it's going to speed up the process, uh, but in, at the same time, keep the college game's integrity so much different and unique from the NFL game. Well, they're also trying to incorporate the rule where if you have a penalty at the end of a quarter, instead of playing an untimed down, carry it over to the next quarter. Well, if you're trying to maintain the integrity and the uniqueness, let's not put in a hockey rule where the penalty carries over to the next period. I don't like it. I, again, who's asking for it? I know it's not the TV networks uh, who are paying billions of dollars to sell advertising. So the players, are they asking for it? If it's, it's under the guise of player safety, but all the data, there isn't any. It's all unsubstantiated. So in a world of let's follow the science, show me the science. Otherwise, leave the game alone. Let's keep the college game the way it is. That's all right, Chris. Here's here's your shot. Culkin has opened the door. Cracking. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't need to take a I don't need to take a mark uh, a shot at Mark. I'm I. Of course not. You never would. Of course, we know that, right? <laughs> that's right. We're we're very close. You're very compassionate. That's, but 
but I'm I'm not worked up over the rule. I, I don't think I don't think a, a loss of seven plays has a dramatic impact on much of anything. It it maybe it shortens the average game time by by seven minutes. And you know, maybe there are people who think college football games go too long. I, I don't. I, I don't care how long they go. Well, you know what? I do care when they start those, when they have those 730 Pacific starts and I'm in Texas and the game comes on at 930. <laughs> you know, the kickoff is like 940 and I have to stay up till 1 a.m. Now I'll do that. But there was a time at the end of Clay's tenure that I was not able to do it. You know, it gets to about midnight and USC looks like garbage and we're down 10. I'd say, screw it. I'll just wake up in the morning and watch the rest of this. Um, so I guess I care a little bit how long they go. Uh, I don't think it affects much. It's not a significant enough change. The shorter the game is, the more likely an upset is, though. Um, if you have the better team over the long haul will eventually win, and anomalies uh, are more likely to occur if you have a smaller data set, right? If you flip a coin a thousand times, you're going to get roughly 500 and 500. If you flip it seven times, who knows what you're going to get? Uh, that's an exaggeration, but it's the same concept. The longer the game goes on, the more likely it is that the better team will eventually assert dominance. I don't think seven plays changes everything, uh, but there are certainly plenty of games that come down to the last seven plays. And so I think this makes it marginally more likely that you will have upsets in college football. It's not going to be a huge difference, but marginally more likely. And because USC is going to be one of the more talented teams in the country, um, uh, I think that this probably has a marginally, um, a, a very modest um, uh, negative effect for USC. But it's very modest. I'm not worked up about it like Colkin is. Colkin is very conservative when it comes to his college football. He doesn't like to see things change. Makes him very angry. But I'm more of an open-minded, progressive guy, so um, so I'm I'm open to all these. Uh, uh, I'm open to what all these crazy kids are doing at the NCAA. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you did what a beautiful. You got Mark laughing. It's a good day now. Look, I'm going to disagree with Chris on this one. I think it's going to be uh, have a big effect for USC, and I and I'll tell you why. Uh, SC has got the ability next year to score from anywhere on the field. They've got skill players. I mean, they they could be just absolutely go on a scoring binge, uh, as we know they were able to do last year. I think they're going to have a bigger uh, quick strike uh, tendency now. And what I think this does is for a school like a team like Utah, for Utah to beat USC normally, they want to make the game shorter. They want to have seventy uh, yard drives and fifteen plays if they can do it, and. If SC is going to continue to score like they do, and which I think they're going to do, it's going to put a lot more pressure on Utah to get out of its comfort zone and, and other schools that play USC. In uh, seven plays, I, I would agree, sounds modest, but that's just on the average. But if you're going to have less plays to, you know, it's it's almost like people were concerned the shot clock in basketball at college level, how that would affect a lot of schools' uh at the time period, I remember when Fresno State was very good in basketball, uh, they would drain the clock, you know, no clock, and then they would control it. I think ball control is, uh, teams are going to be uh, really uh, challenged against high-powered offenses that can strike in a hurry. So it's going to be really interesting to see, I think, in the first several games how USC manages. 
because uh, you know San Jose State doesn't want to give SC the ball too many times on offense. Uh, are they going to try to ball control SC? Well, if they fall behind in a hurry, which they probably will, uh, they're going to be out of their comfort zone. Not not just their game plan. So that's just one rule. Uh, there is and and wait and, wait 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 before okay you fall, okay here we go. Here we go. I'm Fire gonna be, up. I'm going to be nice and I'm going to be polite. I'm just going to say oh. that I think you're contradicting yourself, Greg. On one hand, you say that teams like Utah want to shorten the game. And you're right. They want to have less plays, less possessions. Stanford has, was, has been doing that for, for years. And then you're talking about a rule change that quite literally shortens the game. And you say it's bad for Utah and good for USC. I don't even know what you're talking about now. It's not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, less possessions. Less possessions is good for the team that is not the high-scoring team. If any of USC's opponents had the choice... Of, of having just one possession for each team be the entire football game, they'd all take it. Because if USC has the ball 14 times, they're going to score 10. But maybe, maybe one of those four will be on the one possession. The fewer possessions each team has, but, but the more Chris, likely it is the ball control and lesser team is going to Chris, win the football game. My esteemed colleague, who I, I, I put you at the pedestal of, of our panel, right? Here's the deal. Don't you think that a team that needs to have the ball to be effective 10, 15 plays is going to be under the gun? Don't you, don't you see that that shortening of, of their ability to quick strike score and keep up in a shortened game is going to have an effect on their ability to upset USC? No. Which if USC's opponents could, they would hold the ball for 29 minutes and 30 seconds in both halves and hold USC to two short possessions. The less time, the less plays USC gets, the less possessions USC gets, the happier they are. So any rule that's going to shorten the game and lead to less plays and less possessions is good for the Utahs. It's good for the Stanfords. It's not good for the USC's. The more times Caleb Williams, Caleb Williams is gonna score 80% of the time he has the ball. So the less possessions he has, the more chance you have of scoring as many points as USC has scored. Well, I don't think the possessions for him are, are, are an issue. I think, like you pointed out, he's going to score and score and score. SC will need less possessions by the style they play because they're quick strike or schools like Utah. And as you appropriately said, Stanford, they need to hold on to the ball. And uh, they're not going to be able to have these drives like they that they want if SC scores the way we think they do. But that being said, let's uh, just kind of complete here the, the rule changes. Uh, two other rule changes, and Mark touched on this, were passed uh, from in for the 2023 20, season. Teams will no longer, uh, they will now be prohibited from calling consecutive team timeouts uh, and penalties at the end of the first and third quarter, as Mark pointed out, will carry over and be enforced on the first play of the next quarter. Uh, any thoughts on these particular uh, uh, additions? Is it going to affect anything, Eric? No, they don't matter. It's dumb. Let's go. Mark? Nobody, Nobody's going to realize that these are rules. Wow, that was a great impression of Mark. <laughs> uh, Mark, can you do an impression of Eric? <laughs> as far as the back-to-back -back timeouts, I I'm fine with that. If you want to give a back-to-back -back timeout, make that second one 15 seconds or less, just long enough to acknowledge it and have everybody line back up. To, to kick the field goal. Um, and, and the timeout rule is a good rule because I'm tired of watching three timeouts before a kicker kicks a kick at the end of the half of the game. Like I said, I'm fine with that. If you're going to leave it, just make it literally, we acknowledge it, great. 
line up to it again. Other than that, I'm, I'm fine. Chris, are you fine? No, I told you what I thought. That's a good rule. I'm tired of I'm tired of, what, of watching somebody ice a kicker with three straight timeouts. That's stupid. It's just stupid. I hate that. Well, I think what they should do is they should just request three timeouts. Don't 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 wait for it to come back and then say. And now they called another timeout. And now they come and just say they're calling three straight timeouts like an intentional walk in baseball. All right, just give us five minutes off, uh, and then just let us know what's going on. I I don't think either rule affects anything. Uh, I could care less. Uh, all right, second half kickoff. Here we go. Uh, it's coming up within, uh, well, we're, we're, the show starts on Tuesday. Some of you will be watching this on Thursday, but nonetheless, the NFL is holding its draft this week in Kansas city. Uh, it starts on Thursday. I think it runs through Saturday. Uh, what former Trojans do you see being drafted? What round and why, uh, Chris Arledge, uh, what do you, how do you see the draft? Tell me your names. What round do you think they'll be taken in and why? Jordan Addison will go late in the first round. He, I think, I think he was expected to go a little bit higher than. I don't think he ran as fast as they expected him to, but he'll still be a first round choice. He'll probably go to a good team, so it'll probably be good for him. Um, Voorhees and Thule are probably both third or fourth round picks. I don't know how much the ACL injury is going to hurt Voorhees. He may tumble another round or two since you're not going to have him for probably this this coming year at all. Um, but those guys are both third or fourth round picks. Thule, Thule in that range is probably a really solid pickup because I think he's going to be a contributor who's going to stick around in the league for a long time. Um, Makai Blackman is going to get drafted. I think he's going to get drafted later than he should. I think he's a pretty good player, but uh, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like anybody sees him as a high pick. So I'm going to, I'm going to say fifth round for him. And I think that may be it. Travis Dye may get picked late, but Travis Dye doesn't have the physical skills that most NFL teams want. He's not very big. He's not very fast. He's just a really good football player. Um, but I think that I think that's going to weigh against him. He's probably a free agent pickup. Uh, Brett Nealon the same. I just think he's too small for the NFL to get excited about him. Although again, he's a good football player. Uh, he's probably a free agent pickup. Um, and what that tells you is that this past USC team did not have a lot of dominant upperclassmen. Um, whereas I think next year you'll see a very different, very different scenario, uh, which is what you'd expect from a team that's uh, that's an elite an elite program. USC this year will have a draft like it is not an elite program yet. All right, uh, Eric, how's the draft going to look? No, that all sounds fine. I'm, I'm on board with that. Maybe, maybe Addison slips like early second. I, I think it's been interesting where, when there was a lot of talk about him being the first wide receiver, you don't hear quite that much uh, about him in, in that mix talking about like 12 to 15 um maybe 20 but but late first round I could see for him Thule's had kind of the same drop as the season ended and and we're getting closer and closer to the draft there was a lot of talk about him maybe at the end of the first round or definitely a second round pick I could see three to four and again I could see him being a, another USC player that outplays where he goes uh in the draft and Voorhees same kind of thing round three round four I I think Makai Blackman probably should go around there but yeah i i can see fifth six and i think that's probably it i think those are are the four i think teams i think multiple teams will probably try to take a run at travis died to, to sign him uh after the draft he's he's a guy that, that you want to bring in but again 
if a guy ran out and if a guy went out and, and ran a four three, you're gonna roll the dice on on picking him and then bringing Travis Dye in as a as an undrafted free agent, I think. And then the other guys might see time too. You know, Nick, Nick Figueroa, I think Brandon Peely are probably the other two names to mention as as potential uh, undrafted guys that that land somewhere and at, at least get a look um, somewhere. But I think four um, is is definitely kind of the safe number. Uh, and then I think Addison probably probably adds that tally of first round picks for USC. All right, Mark, you like to call it your bingo card, but for this exercise, we'll call it your draft card. How's it looking for you? Where are they going? Yeah, you know, look, Addison, I think everyone assumes it's still going to go first round. I, I suppose that that would be the surprise if he dropped to the second day. But, you know, the talk has been one of the, you know, the Giants, maybe the Chargers, uh, maybe Philadelphia. Voorhees, I'm a little bit, I'm more um, bullish on him. I, I think his performance at the combine on one leg is going to enhance his draft status. So I could see him going on day two. Although, you know, guards typically don't go high unless they are, you know, game breakers, game changers. So I, I could see him being day two, day three. Uh, Thule, look, just put on his game film and be the team that isn't going to regret passing him up around earlier. Is he a day two? Is he day three? I don't know. He's going to fall somewhere in there, in my opinion. Makai Blackman. Um, value pick wherever you get them at. And then as far as the other guys, I'm a big fan of, of Brett, whether or not he has the, the measurables and an NFL roster wants at center. I don't know, but I, I think he'll get drafted. He'll be probably a last day. And then the other guys undrafted free agents, Travis die is that borderline guy just because, you know, he doesn't do anything spectacular, but he's going to be a solid contributor on any roster that he makes. Um, maybe it's, he's destined to be the Mr. Irrelevant. Who knows? It, it just seems apropos for him. All right. I'll, I'll make mine quick here. Uh, I think Addison goes late first round, uh, Tui Pelotu middle to second, late second round. I see Voorhees going in the sixth round because of the leg thing. Uh, Blackman uh, probably mid sixth round. Uh, I tend to agree with you on uh, all of you with die. I think I'm not sure, it, it, you know, I'm pulling for die. I, I think he's a football player. Uh, I know seventh round would be, uh, you know, ego. I got drafted, but I'm not so sure his best bet isn't uh, signing as a free agent at a place that he could play. I think he can make the roster. He's just a football player. And we've seen over the years, guys that are like that, that stick in the NFL there, you know, if not just for special teams, he, he knows what he's doing and we, we wish him the best of luck. Now, looking ahead, and we don't need a long explanation on any, but just your 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 list of whatever. Uh, do you see who do you see being selected in the 2024 NFL draft? Uh, if and and I put why, but if you feel you want to just go through a quick list, that's fine. Chris, uh, who do you see going in the 2024? draft it could, it could be a whopper actually yeah i think usc probably gets 10 players drafted next year caleb williams gonna know go number one overall uh marshawn lloyd's probably gonna get drafted he's a running back and 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 running backs tend to be undervalued these days caleb bullock is gonna be drafted 
Mason Cobb's going to be drafted. Jacoby Covington is. You got four wide receivers who all are, are eligible and could be drafted. I'm thinking Dorian Singer and, uh, may may sneak into the third or fourth round. And you got to have about four offensive linemen who could get drafted. And I'm going to say Jonah Monheim is going to be a top uh, a top maybe a second or third round pick. So you've got you know. I think I think they're going to have ten guys get drafted next year, and they're going to have a pretty decent showing on the first day or two. All right, Eric, who are we looking at in the twenty four draft? Is it going to be a whopper? I mean, ten might be disappointing in in terms of the the potential of who could go, and when you're talking about the potential of what guys could show this year. Um, I mean, I you know I'd say that a, a little bit tongue in cheek. Ten would certainly be a, a great year uh, for any school, but. In even just kind of looking down the list and not really even projecting a ton of three-year guys or four-year guys with another year of eligibility, um, you can get there. Caleb Williams is going to be the next USC player to go number one overall. And then you've got, you mentioned, I, I think a lot of it depends on what some of these defensive linemen show this year, right? Does Keon Bars prove that, that he's an NFL pick? Jack Sullivan same thing. I think uh, Mason Cobb is is in there too. Um, what do they show, right? Because there's a big difference between being a good college player who can't quite get drafted and, and get signed to a free agent deal and a guy who's a, an absolute surefire uh, NFL draft pick. Um, but you mentioned Jonah Monheim. Does he take off early? Uh, Marshawn Lloyd's in that discussion. I, I think based on what he might be able to do, this year, Christian Rollins and Jacoby Covington, maybe at, at cornerback, a couple of guys, depending on the seasons they have. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could pretty easily jot down 12 to 15 names of if things go well this year. Yeah, they, they could absolutely be uh, picked in the next draft. Mark, are we going to see a stampede of Trojans in the 24 draft? Yeah, you're definitely going to have double digit numbers. Um, I, I don't need to repeat the names that you know Chris and, and Eric have already rattled off. So you know from a from from the optics point of view, it's going to look great. You know, recruits are going to notice it. Um, transfer portal players are going to keep, continue to notice it, and USC will just now hopefully they're going to be back into that. Let's just develop that pipeline and become that NFL factory uh, that they were known for during the Pete Carroll years. So yeah, they're close. They're real close. And again, I, I don't disagree. You're going to have at least 10 players um, in the draft next year, hearing their names called. And then a handful of others, it'll go in, you know, undrafted free agents. Yeah, I think there'll be as many as 16 players taken in the NFL draft. I would be surprised uh, if there was, uh, you know, if, if there was less than 14, I would be uh, shocked. But I think, the, you know, when you take a look at the guys that could go, I think the bottom line message to me is this uh, for the transfer players come to USC. We can develop you. You'll get drafted. And that of course will expand into to selling to high school players. So it, it's going to be a whopper. There's, there's no doubt about it. So let's move on here to uh, uh, the final part of this NFL deal. I thought this was, would be an interesting uh, quick take here. Although there are a lot of choices uh, uh, that you could choose from, but what former USC a football player selected in any NFL draft surprised you by turning out to be better in the NFL than at USC. We may all be in consensus on this, but Chris, what, what name or couple names uh, strike you as they were better in the NFL than they were at USC? 
I mean, Matt Castle is the obvious choice, right? It, obvious. I've seen a lot of USC players who uh, who I didn't think would be great in the NFL, but but uh, but turned out to be pretty good football players. I don't think I've ever seen a guy who never started a game at USC <laughs> that plays, you know, ten years in the NFL, starts for almost an entire season, and wins eleven games. I mean, that that doesn't happen. So I think he's the obvious choice. The guy had no touchdown passes at USC, no starts threw for 192 yards in four years. That's not exactly the resume of a longtime NFL player, but he did it. Eric? Yeah, I mean, if, if I had to go with somebody else, Everson Griffin maybe would, would pop up for me. I, I think that there was some, you know, maybe he didn't quite live up to what you expected of him at USC, and then he goes to the NFL and becomes – I mean, for a couple of years, just a, a dominant force on the defensive line there. So, again, Ca Castle's the right answer. But if if I have to go with somebody else, Griffin, I think is a is a good choice. Mark, is it Castle or somebody else for you? No, it's Matt Castle. But so we can throw out another name. Um, and this was I'm probably stretching on this one. Anthony Munoz did not play a lot when he was at USC. He was injured frequently. That's a good one. No, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> but he turned out to be in the NFL is, you know, Hall of Fame, left tackle, you know, and the rest is history. So, again, it's kind of a stretch. When he was playing at USC, he was really good, but he became the man when he got to the NFL. Yeah, and I'm going to go with Matt Castle because here, here's the real rub to me. Matt Castle, as you've already said, had this pretty good career at, at in the NFL he lasted a heck of a lot longer than Matt Leiner did and Matt Leiner won the Heisman Trophy so you know everybody has their little niche but uh, what a story for Castle uh okay let's let's get to overtime this is a good overtime because we didn't get to those last week because of some times issues here so let's get right to the questions uh from uh our listeners that we held on to some of them from last week we have uh, some new ones from this week. So from Trojans Forever in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I love Miller Moss and his loyalty to the Trojans. If he was needed to step into the starting lineup with Lincoln's Riley's guidance, do you think he could lead the Trojans to a championship? Jump in, guys. Yes. Any? Absolutely. What, what kind of championship? A national championship? Well, there's no, there's no specifics on that. Yeah. What, what, what do you think? Is it zero chance that Miller Moss leads USC to a national championship? Even with Caleb Williams as Superman, USC is a is a heavy underdog to Georgia or Alabama or a team like that in the playoff. Um, but could USC win the Pac-12 with Miller Moss? Sure, I could see that happening. The Pac-12 isn't an easy conference to win either, but I could see that happening. But no, if USC is going to win a national title, they have to have Caleb Williams. And he has to be healthy, Caleb Williams, running around being Superman. Wow. All that faith in Lincoln Riley and Cliff Kingsbury to develop quarterbacks and talented quarterbacks just out the window if it's not Caleb Williams. Amazing. <laughs> I'm not even, even going to argue the point with you, Mark. You're just being silly at this point. Eric, jot that down. Chris is not going to argue a point. Uh, yeah, it's jotted. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think Miller Moss could lead him to a, a championship. It depends on how the rest of the team and the defense plays. National championship, not so sure. Uh, question two from uh, JCW USC in Palm Desert, California. Could the panel explain the difference in personnel groupings? I hear occasionally mentioned as 10 personnel, 11 personnel, and I believe I heard 21 personnel once. 
What does each imply? And I'm missing other groups. Nomenclature is right on. Uh, anybody want to volunteer what uh, 10 and 11 and 21 mean? It's basically... It's, just, it's the number of running backs and then the number of tight ends. So 10 is one running back, zero tight ends. Those numbers are going to have to add up to five or or less, considering you've got five offensive linemen and a, and a quarterback. So you could have... You could have 14 personnel or 41 or whatever you want to call it. Um, but that's how it is. I, I think the interesting thing I don't again know if you is you could have 41 personnel, Eric, because if you have a quarterback and you have four running backs, you now have five guys in the backfield. I don't know. Well, you go, but they'll line up. And that, that's kind of the point is you're getting interesting, interesting groupings now where you've got <laughs> these tight end wide receivers where what do you, what do you call that guy when he goes out on the field and you've got the other team yelling oh they're in 11 or whatever then he goes up and and he's a wide receiver and can play like a wide receiver that's where a, a deuce robinson somebody like that kind of puts you in trouble and why you're seeing you know guys like travis kelsey and and all these tight ends in the nfl have a lot of success because they put you in trouble with where, where you don't exactly know what personnel group in there is because a relique brown goes out and he's like well is he a running back is he a wide receiver and, and you can do a lot of different stuff with those guys. Yep. All right. Uh, from Woody and Tarzan, uh, California panel, USC's three non-conference games in 2023 are San Jose state, Nevada, Notre Dame. If you could substitute one or two of these games with another team, who would you want as a replacement? Uh, who would you rather see instead of San Jose state or Nevada? I'm sure you want Notre Dame, but was there, is there a team that you'd like to see that replace them? With the second half of the schedule this year, no. I mean, I, I'm never excited about a San Jose State or a Nevada game, but the the last half of this schedule is is the toughest run that anybody has in the country. So I, I wouldn't be eager about saying, yeah, let's get rid of San Jose State and take Clemson on the road. Right? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> we got we got enough problems as it is. Oh. Let's just leave it alone. <laughs> no, but in a vacuum, I'd replace San Jose State and Nevada with Notre Dame twice and just play them three times in a, in a row. <laughs> Not looking at the full schedule. Brutal. <laughs> For entertainment purposes, you know, load it up. If we, you know, putting aside trying to win the championship, I like the old days when USC's out-of-conference schedule was Arkansas, Notre Dame, and, and a third power power five team. So I, I'd love to go back to that. And again, with the 12-team playoff coming up, strength of schedule, you're going to see more two and three lost teams making the playoffs coming out of the SEC and, and the big conference. So if, you're, if your losses are coming against Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and those are your two losses. I don't think it's really going to hurt you. Uh, okay. From John in the Inland Empire, uh, I enjoyed the spring game, but what changes would you make for future spring games, either on or off the field? I will just say this. I'm happy with the way the spring game is now. I think that Lincoln Riley's done a great job. You know, he leaves you wanting more, but at least you're watching a game compared to what the other guy did when we had a, a thud spring game. Yeah, I think the game is fine, right? A half of a football and you get to see enough of it. I I think they could do more to, you know, carnival atmosphere for all the people that are there and make it more of a day. I mean, Lincoln Riley said that coming in. Hey, we're we're in and out. We're gonna we're gonna play some football and then we're out of there. I think there's, you know, you could set some stuff up and the 
parking lot and make it sort of a, a fan fest uh, to bring fans out there. I also understand that it's just one of 15 practices for the team. And so that that's, that's what they're to do is that that's what they're there to do, get their work in and, and then go. Um, but I do feel like last year there was more of a sort of fan friendly environment, bringing, bringing people out um, for the day. All right. Uh, question five from Trojan Mike in Dallas to the chief historian of USC football factor fiction. After the 1970 game versus Bama, Sam Cunningham was taken to the Tides locker room and surrounded by Bama players. Coach uh, Bryant reportedly told the team, this is what a football player looks like. Uh, fact or fiction? I think it's fiction. I've heard a lot of comments that it, it didn't happen, but it sounds good. And somebody took something out of context. It's not, it's not unusual for players to go into the other locker room if it's close and congratulate somebody. I know that Kevin Bruce told me that uh, after he played in the 1975 uh, Rose Bowl, which was the 74 season, uh, he had a massive battle with uh, All-America offensive tackle uh, uh, Kurt Schumacher, and he went to see him, and Schumacher uh, was cut all over his face, beat up, and that was compliments of Kevin. And, of course, Kevin uh, respected Schumacher because Schumacher did the same thing to him so, but to my knowledge, uh, I think that's been uh, basically a uh, a fiction uh, in the way it actually happened. I think Cunningham didn't say it happened. So uh, that's my understanding of it. Uh, question six from Scott in Gilbert, Arizona. My question is, is this USC roster the most talented roster that Lincoln Riley has ever coached, Oklahoma included? Uh, perspectives? Time will tell. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe. If you look just at NFL draft picks, um, his 2019 roster had, what, eight guys. Eight guys get drafted and- 2018, and, right? Because that, that'd be the 2019 draft. That's right. 2018 team, 2019 draft. Yet, and six of those were in the top, top four rounds, um, including four offensive linemen, a running back, a wide receiver, and a quarterback that went number one overall. That's a pretty impressive offensive draft class, but the defensive draft, you know, th there's no showing by any defensive players, which, you know, <laughs> maybe a red flag. We'll see, guys. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, USC, USC may be able to beat that this year. Um, we'll see. I'll but he had some good teams. In, he had some good teams in Oklahoma, so this is not obvious to me. I'm willing to trade the draft results a year from now for a playoff result this year, because I think that will balance the scales as far as is this his best team. That's all Trojan fans are going to care about. Just get, get back to the, get back to the top of the hill. Everything else will sort itself out after that. All right. Question seven from Trojan from, uh, call from Boulder to Birmingham. Hello guys. This is Boulder to Birmingham from Santa Clarita. This is directed at Mark or Eric. Now that Bear is on board, that's Bear Alexander. Any thoughts about where USC stands with O-lineman Cam Johnson, Wyckoff of A&M, or Pregnon from Wyoming? I think we talked about this. Uh, any other portal players to be focused on? Uh, thanks for all that you do. And again, we thank you for watching and, and participating in the question and answer part here. Is I don't there anything think you don't know? cut us out, Greg. 
Look at the question. He cut you and me out. Why are you thanking him? Hey, Boulder, I'm not okay with that. <laughs> Look, it's true that I'm not a recruiting expert, but I'm not an expert at any of the other things we talk about either, but I still have, I still have answers. The, look, we're going to direct the high, the Texas high school football questions <laughs> your way. That's right. He's okay. Mr. Tex He's, uh, what was the name? Uh, Campbell's, uh, what, Texas Football Magazine? Yeah, Dave, Dave Campbell, I think. David Campbell, yeah, I used to subscribe to it. And yeah. uh, we're just going to call you the Chris uh, Arledge Texas Football Report. I think it's a, a whole new thing for you to get into. That's uh, fine. I still have a beef with Boulder, though. <laughs> hey, hey, all right is there any other portal players that uh we do not know about that could possibly be on the horizon uh anybody want to volunteer with uh, any knowledge of that i mean scott scott trader on the site right he had a he had a story about a potential visit from alabama cornerback uh triquan figans and so he's a guy that usc when they bring in transfer transfer portal players for official visits, the success rate is very high. The two offensive linemen uh, coming in for visits, I'm going to go ahead and say USC has, has a really good chance with them. When you're talking about, you know, Wyckoff from Texas A&M, does he, does he come out for a visit, right? The, these guys, they, they want to see the school. They want to do that. So that that's always, when it comes to, to transfer portal guys, if they get an offer from USC or interest from USC, that's one level. If they get out to USC and take that visit, I'm going to go ahead and bet that the USC is going to be able to seal the, seal the deal on that. And then it'll just be numbers. If they bring out, let's say four guys for one spot, you know, that then you got to see how it, how it shakes out. But USC is not going to waste their time tripping guys in that, that they don't feel like they have a shot with when it comes to the transfer portal. Yeah, they're, they're looking for the, go, ahead, go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. Uh, they're looking for specific talented guys to fill holes, but it's still the process is character over talent. Do the vetting process. If they're seriously interested, as Eric just said, they're going to make the visit. And at that point, it's it's really coming down to dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and making one of those first four guys who are vying for that spot to jump through the hoop first. That that's that's what's at with USC's transfer portal. All right, question eight from B. Davis, 711 in Irvine, with the addition of Bear, again, Bear Alexander, and possible additions on the offensive line. And I think we can just answer this yes or no. Do you think the odds have gone up for USC's uh, college football playoff chances? I say yes. What about the rest of you? Do I have your permission, yeah. Chris? To say yes. Mark, you, you don't have to ask for my permission. I think Boulder from Birmingham wants to hear from you. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm giving you. Yeah, no, the answer obviously is yes. USC has a top five roster this year and the best player in college football. They just have a really tough back half of the schedule. All right. Question nine from Takashi in Beaverton, Oregon. With the Trojans leaving the Pac-12 after this season, will they ever play Oregon again? Chris, we should start off with you on this. You, you, you're appropriate to answer this question. Yeah, I think we will. I mean, look at this year's schedule. They have San Jose and Nevada. I mean, there are going to be years when they can, when you can't get San Jose on the schedule, but you need a, you know, you need a small time program that you can just have a home game and uh, and no no return trip. So I could see us playing Oregon multiple times. Do you, you know, put the maybe. TV streak on the line though? 
play, playing them, just hoping somebody picks that game up. <laughs> well, I think you can. I think it'll be on the CW at the very least. <laughs> oh, the poor CW is taking a lot of heat over that, hasn't it? Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think they'll play Oregon again. Uh, who knows? Maybe down the line they'll be playing Oregon in the Big Ten at some point. Who knows? You can see a playoff game too. I mean, if if again, like if the Pac-12 hangs on to the you know Power Five conference and their their conference winner gets a spot in the in the playoffs, that's not that's not the worst place for Oregon to be. Where all you have to do is beat out a handful of other teams that maybe aren't totally serious about football and find your way into the into the playoff. Well, I could see a first round game uh, if they go by first round is you play a home, you get a home game. I could see the television loving uh, a West Coast matchup of the Big Ten Trojans versus the Pac-12 or whatever they're going to be, Oregon. I could see that happening. Uh, kind of be kind of fun, actually. All right. Yeah. yeah. Like, Why keep a West Coast, you know, out of conference game every year, at least one. So you just put them on the rotation. You got Cal, you got Stanford, you got Oregon State, you got Oregon, you got the Washington schools, you got the Arizona school. So they're going to play them. It's just what year and, you know, where are they in, in line? I'd put them at the end of the line to Chris's point. All right. The final question, number 10, this is from Dylan in Spokane, Washington. Who's next at quarterback? I was really pulling for Elijah Brown and all the MD kids, that's modern day uh, kids. Uh, to come with, but that looks unlikely. Okay. Does anyone have an answer for this? I don't know why everybody assumes that if you get the modern-day quarterback, you're going to get the whole rest of the modern-day roster. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It never works that way. Stop assuming it. You, Lincoln Riley's not going to have trouble getting a quarterback. If he doesn't get the quarterback he wants this year, he'll get the one he wants next year, or he'll get a transfer. This is, of all the things to worry about when it comes to USC football, will Lincoln Riley find a good quarterback that wants to play for Lincoln Riley is way at the very bottom of the list. Don't lose any sleep over this, fellas. All right. You heard it there first. Any other comments? No, that's correct. That's correct. That's the easy. I mean, it, the the next quarterback that plays for USC honestly might not be on the roster this year, but whoever takes a snap under center or behind center for Lincoln Riley is going to be a, a very, very good quarterback and the guy that he wants. And, and that's how that spot will always work out for Lincoln Riley. If it, if it feels at all like USC has an opening at quarterback, every single person responsible for giving advice to top quarterbacks at any school in the country is going to tell them you need to get over to USC right now and play quarterback for Lincoln Riley. That spot is fine. All right. Well, listen, we want to thank everybody for their patience uh, from last week and, and kicking the, those questions over this week. We enjoy answering your questions. And again, if you have a question or comments for our panel, uh, please go to either the We RSC message boards, click on the thread that pertains inside the Trojan Huddle viewer or listener questions. Uh, and we'll be very happy to discuss it, maybe give you some inside info that you're not familiar with. So on that note, that will do it for Tuesday's edition of Inside the Trojan Huddle. So until next Tuesday, big thank you again to our, our great panelists, uh, Mark Culkin, Eric McKenney, and Chris Arledge. 
And a special thank you to all of you for watching or listening to Inside the Trojans Huddle. Have yourself a great week. And until then, this is your moderator, Greg Katz, reminding all of you to fight on, everybody.